The sermon today comes from Psalm 25. So let's read this psalm together, and then let's pray. A psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of God. Let's pray. O oh Lord, open our eyes that we might behold glorious truths in your word. Most of all, O oh Lord, open our eyes that we might behold the glory and the wonder and the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the goodness of God in your word. Equip me, I ask, and grant me your spirit to deliver your word to your people for their good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You may be seated, brothers and sisters. I have the great, great privilege of being able to preach to you today. And actually, it was not easy for me to think about what the Lord would have for his people to be presented, and uh, actually I prayed quite a bit and, and hummed and hawed about what passage to, to, to present to you today. Uh, but I think that the Lord has led us to his word in Psalm 25. And this year, uh, in the past number of months, my second daughter had her 13th birthday. That's Rebecca. And that means that we have two teenage girls in our house now. And recently, my, my elder daughter asked, Dad, when can I learn how to drive? You know what that means? That means that we're starting to enter the tribulation that causes desolation. At least desolation on the roads. She also began talking about what she wants to do after high school and what kind of vocation she wants to choose, and her direction for the future. And the phrase that I hear from her frequently saying is, I just don't know what to do. I don't know 
what God would have me to do. And by God's grace, uh, my eldest daughter, Abigail, wants to serve the Lord, but with respect to a specific direction, is unsure. And not only is she unsure, but I'm also unsure as to how to properly guide her in those decisions. When it comes to guiding our children, how to raise them in the fear and discipline of the Lord, frequently I'm trying to feel my way in the dark. The times, they are a-changing. They are a-changing fast. The perils in this world seem to be increasing at a breakneck speed. How are we supposed to proceed in this world? How are we to honor God in this life? I don't think I'm alone in feeling this way. I, I see myself, I see my own weaknesses, I see my family, I see the world around me, and I really need guidance. And perhaps you feel similarly about the decisions and the circumstances of your own life. We have various ages in this church. Some of you might be contemplating, what career should I choose? What should I study? What future do I need to pursue? Who and how shall I marry? Where shall I live? How shall I educate my little children? How should I deal with the uncertainty that I face even in my little children's health? For some, a severe trial. How should I respond to the waywardness I see in my children as well as in my own heart? How do I respond to their sin and to my sin? How do I deal with my own weaknesses and my persistent stumblings? How should I respond to the poignant trials that face me, that multiply, it would seem, that enlarge in my heart, that provide affliction and trouble and distress? Some of us are a little bit further along in years. We have more years behind than ahead, and certainly encounter uncertainty in how God would have us to spend our later years. How can I honor God in my retirement, you might be asking. How can God use me to influence my grandchildren for the gospel? So I think many of us are in the same boat. We are looking in one way or another in various circumstances and decisions and uncertainties for guidance from the Lord. And that's what God's word presents to us today. This psalm is a prayer of David seeking guidance from God in a time of oppression and opposition from enemies. And the setting for this psalm is not clear, other than David is beset by enemies. Well, that doesn't help much because it seems that he was beset by enemies most of, if not all, of his life. Um, the reference in verse 7 to the sins of his youth suggests perhaps David is, is more advanced in years. Perhaps this is the time when Ab, uh, his son Absalom has rebelled against him, and David is now fleeing for his life into the wilderness. But, of course, we cannot know for sure. Nonetheless, he has experienced so many enemies, and he continues to be beset by enemies. In the context of, of when Absalom drove him out, the future was definitely uncertain. We might think that Adam was asking to himself, will I survive? Will I lose grip? Will I lose my grip on the kingdom? Will I ever return into this city to worship God alongside the people of God? Whatever the, the specific trial that David was facing in this psalm, we don't know. But the point is, is that it was a time of uncertainty and pain, when he is beset by enemies, when the trials of his heart are enlarged. And in that moment, David comes to the Lord and prays to the Lord for guidance. And this prayer is recorded for us in this psalm. And so we have, as this psalm, a pattern for us in our need, when we need guidance, to see how David went to God and how God responded to David to see how we can go to God and how God responds and has responded to us. So I want to look at this psalm together 
But before we get into the details of the psalm, it's helpful to zoom out and look at it kind of from a 30,000-foot perspective. And I want to talk a little bit about the structure of this psalm. And I think that it's important to understand the content of the psalm, to understand the structure. First of all, if you notice, in my Bible, there's a little number next to the chapter heading. In, in your Bible, it may be in another place. And that little chapter note, to me, says that this psalm is an acrostic poem, with each verse beginning with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You've probably seen little poems like that, where we take A is for apple, B is for, and so on, and we make a little poem about some topic. And that's what this psalm is. It's an acrostic poem. And there's many of these types of poems in the book of Psalms. This is the first. And th this literary style is common, and it provides a beauty, and it provides structure to the psalm, and it also is, is a helpful memory device to remember the psalm more easily. So that's one comment about the structure. Another comment about the structure of the psalm is that the psalm is antiphonal. That's a big word. It means there are two voices. There are two voices present. And maybe you noticed this when we read it first, but let's look at it again. And I'm going to make you work, actually, today in today's sermon. So we're going to be doing a lot of looking at the psalm, starting with verses 1 to 7. So let's look at verses 1 to 7. It begins, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. And it continues. Notice the pronouns that David is using there, right? He is speaking personally. I lift up my soul. In you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let my enemies not exalt over me. And, and, and it's a very personal voice. He is speaking from his heart his prayer to God. And that continues one all the way to verse 7, right? In verse 7, remember not the sins of my youth, my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And then, notice in verse 8, the voice changes. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way and so forth. Did you, did you see how the voice changed? It went from a personal plea before the Lord, David praying for his own needs, to, in verse 8, a, a teacher almost coming in and, and beginning and interrupting, interrupting almost David's prayer and, and bringing a voice that is um, a shift to a third-person voice and, and, and talking kind of abstractly, uh, removed, in a sense, from the situation that David is in and talking about what God is like and how he instructs and how he leads and how he teaches. And, and it is like this second voice is, is a teacher coming alongside David in the middle of his prayer, almost interrupting David to teach him and instruct him about God. And you'll notice that this voice and David's voice have a dialogue in this psalm. There's a call and repeat. Verse 11, the, uh, the, the teacher's voice is, is all the way through 8, 9, and 10. Verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. But then 11, there's a shift again. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. So David's voice comes back. But then it shifts to the teacher again in verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall be abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land, and so forth. So the teacher's voice comes back in, and it switch from pleading to teaching, instructing. And that teacher's voice is from 12 to 14. And now look at 15. We're going to get some exercise today. Look at verse 15. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. 
And that voice persists until the end of the psalm. And so what we see is there's this dialogue in the psalm as David's praying, that he pleads, he cries out, he addresses God personally, and then there's this teacher that also comes in and instructs and and, and teaches and guides. And that teacher's voice, as we consider, actually is addressing the pleads and, and the cries that David is asking of the Lord. And the other thing I want you to notice is the parallel between these voices. If we look at the prayer that David prays in verses 1 to 7, right, that personal pleading with the Lord for deliverance, for guidance, for forgiveness, it's mirrored again in verses 15 to 22. Verses 1 to 7 and 15 to 22, so the beginning seven verses and the last seven, eight verses, they, they parallel one another. Similar themes. You'll notice similar words are there. And then the instruction given by the teacher in verses 8 to 10, the teacher's voice who talks about the character of the Lord, the blessings of the Lord, the nature of the Lord, is again repeated in verses 12 to 14. So this psalm, structurally, is like a big X. A big X. The flow moves from the beginning to the main point in the middle, and from the bottom backwards to the main point in the middle. So looking from the beginning forward, David pleads and the teacher answers, and then the teacher answers and David pleads. This is a literary device called a chiasm, which literally means X-shaped. The the Greek letter chies looks like a big X. So whether we look at this psalm from the beginning to the middle, or from the end to the middle, they both cross or they intersect at the middle verse, verse 11. And that is a clue to us that that middle verse is the key point that David is trying to emphasize in this psalm. And that verse is is David's plea for the Lord to pardon his guilt. Okay, so with that said about the structure of the psalm, it's an acrostic, it's antiphonal with two voices, and these two voices mirror one another in a kind of parallel inversion, a chiasm. The reason why I, I, I spend so much time emphasizing the structure of this psalm is because I'm going to change gears a little bit to what we're used to. So normally we, we go a, a sequential verse-by-verse exposition of the, of the Word of God when we preach, when I preach, or when, John's, when John preaches. But today we're going to study this psalm chiastically. We're going to follow its X shape. And another way of thinking about it is I'm going to preach the psalm from the edges in. So I'm going to preach from the beginning and the end, together, until we arrive in the middle. And I hope, by doing this, the flow of thought that David is presenting to us here comes out. And when we read this psalm chiastically, like an X, from the beginning, excuse me, from the edges in, it unfolds into three glorious thoughts. And the first one is David's plea unto the Lord. And that's in 1 to 7 and 15 to 22. Interior to that, it's God's covenant faithfulness expressed twice, 8 to 10, 12 to 14. And then right in the middle of the psalm, the pardon that God has given for sin. So I pray that by God's grace, we may be able to see uh, David's plea, God's covenant faithfulness, as we consider ultimately the the crux and the focus of this psalm that David cries out to God in pardon for his sin. So let's get started. Firstly, let's look at the plea that David has. And this is again 1 to 7 and 15 to 22. The psalm begins and ends with a voice, David pleading with the Lord, 
1 to 3, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And then those same thoughts are echoed in 19 and 20. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. So these thoughts express that David is in trouble and in distress, and in his distress, he goes to the Lord for deliverance, and he expresses his trust in the Lord, crying out to God as my God, and he has made the Lord his refuge, he says. I wait for you, he says. He prays for the Lord to protect him, to uphold him, to not allow his enemies to triumph over him and thereby impugn the goodness and the promises of God in David's life. He's confident in the Lord in whom he trusts. He knows the Lord will uphold him and keep him secure. And yet the poignancy of these difficult circumstances remain. We don't know which foes he's referring to. It could be Absalom, could be Apostle, uh, Apostle, King Saul, it could be someone else. But the point is, his foes are continually mistreating him with wanton treachery and violence, hatred. And David raises up this plea for deliverance. And he asks the Lord to consider his trials, to consider the number of enemies that surround him and to deliver him. And perhaps you might resonate with David's prayer. Enemies surround you. Maybe they're not people. Maybe they're not, you know, physical human beings mistreating you. But certainly this is true for our greatest enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Perhaps you can resonate with the severity of trials and oppressive circumstances that you're facing. Right? You're not facing the same trial as David, but you're facing a trial that causes affliction in your heart like David. Health trial, relationship trials, parenting trials, besetting sin, and the like. What are we to do? David gives us the, the, the right example. We are to lift up our soul to the Lord, to set our trust upon the Lord, to take refuge in the Lord, to wait on the Lord, for none who wait for him shall be put to shame. Verse 3. And in addition to deliverance from trials, David also prays for guidance in the midst of trials. Look at verses 4 and 5. David says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. And then that prayer is echoed again in verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. These trying circumstances have left David at a loss. What should I do? Where should I go? How should I live? He's asking God for guidance. And his prayer is not just for practical guidance, but even more moral and spiritual guidance. In these trying circumstances of life, O oh Lord, teach me how to live in a manner that is honoring to you. That's what he wants to know. In his trail, trial, he prays and he asks the Lord, make me know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. In the midst of this painful circumstance, preserve my walk. May I not falter. Teach me how to walk with integrity and with uprightness. And notice that David makes this prayer on a twofold basis, right? His, his, the base or the, the rationale or the reason for coming to God and asking this prayer is twofold. Firstly, in verse 5, it says, For you are the God of my salvation. In other words, God, you have saved me in the past. You have delivered me in the past. You have demonstrated loving kindness and goodness and mercy to me in the past. You are my God. Having saved me, 
I know that you will continue to save me. You will continue to protect and guide and instruct and lead and teach me in the way that honors you. And this is another way of saying what Apostle Paul said in in Philippians 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So God, as the God of David's salvation, was the basis of uh, David crying out to God. And the second thing is David declares, I wait for you all the day long. What else am I going to do? Where else am I going to go? How am I going to make it through this trial? I don't have my own strength. I don't have wisdom to know how to live, where to go. I cannot depend on myself. I am utterly dependent upon you, O Lord. I have no place to go but to you. Who am I? Who have I in heaven but you? Psalm 73. On my own, I am not able to find a way. In this trial, nor in any other area of my life, I cannot depend on myself, but I can only depend on you, O Lord. And we have this sense that David is not merely waiting for God to do something, like to answer his prayer or to relieve his circumstance, but but David is waiting on God himself, that this trial exposed in, in David's heart And in David's life, the truth that we all need to remember, and that is that God is our God and that we live not according to our own wisdom or strength or understanding, but upon his grace. Trials come oftentimes because we forgot that we live by God's grace. And it is God's grace to remind us to live by grace. For David and for us, God is our deliverer. God is our guide. It is in him and through him and by him that we have our being. He is the God of our salvation. He is our hope in life and death. In uncertainty, we wait for him. Elsewhere in the Psalms, the psalmist cries out, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He is our hope. Sometimes, like David, we wait all the day long, right? all the day and all the night and for many, many days at a time. But the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. By his perceived delay, he may be leading us and teaching us and guiding us to rely on him. And David's waiting prompted a contemplation of himself in his life. He was waiting on the Lord. He had nothing to do, so he began thinking about himself. And his mind landed upon the frequency and the intensity of his own sin. He recalled maybe the sins of his youth. And I don't know what he thought about, but maybe he remembered with so much regret the sin that he had sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba or other sins. And this prompted in David a third plea. Look at verses 6 and 7. Remember your mercy, O Lord for your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And then again in verse 16 and 18, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. David's external peril, these human foes, are not what's causing the greatest anguish in his heart. It is the knowledge of his sin before God. And so he prays that the Lord would not remember his transgressions. The Lord would not remember his youthful sins that the Lord would remember instead his mercy and his steadfast love, which is from of old, that is, it is eternal. That God would look to his affliction and his loneliness and a trouble in heart, and that God would turn to David in grace, and, and that all of these desires that David has would be addressed and wrapped up and answered and encompassed by the one plea to forgive all my sins. 
David has a growing awareness of sin before the Lord. The trials on the outside exposed anguish for sin on the inside. And maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've experienced how the external pains and trials of life have prompted in you an increasing awareness of your sins internally. And this is surely a painful experience. And yet it is a mercy of God. And Spurgeon writes, The believer under affliction discovers the true source of all mischief and lays the axe at the root of it. Forgive all my sins is the cry of a soul that is more sick of sin than of pain and would sooner be forgiven than healed. Blessed is the man to whom sin is more unbearable than disease. And yet men are slow to see the intimate connection between sin and sorrow. And yet a grace-taught heart can feel this. So we might wonder, why in the world does David think about his sins? Doesn't he know that we are forgiven? The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The passage that Tom read said, God does not bring our sin to mind. As far as the east is far from the west, so far as he removed our sin from us. And that's true. And yet, the Christian's experience attests to the reality that as God forgives our sin, and as he manifests his multiplication of grace upon our lives, And as we go through the trials of life, it is the work of His Spirit to produce in our hearts an increasing awareness of sin, an increasing appreciation and and approbation of an understanding of the, the remaining sin. And the sin that causes so much sorrow and pain also causes so much joy and thanksgiving because we have been no longer bound to our sins, but have been set free from sin. And so Spurgeon says, the sin that the believer remembers in repentance, God forgives and forgets in his grace. So, brothers and sisters, we can see the grace that God prompts trials in our life. Oftentimes, trials of sin, where we are beset by sin and we wonder, how in the world can the Lord even forgive one like me? And we cry out to the Lord like David cries out, and we say, forgive my sin, though it is great, and that is a mercy, because in that, God is, is multiplying the, 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 the graciousness of our salvation and reminding us of the mercy of his faithfulness. And so let's turn to that second voice who answers, in a sense, David's prayers in in the other dialogue. So this is in verses 8 to 10 and also 12 to 14. So as if in answer to his desperate pleas, this second voice in the psalm extols the Lord for his covenant faithfulness. And if we look carefully, we see a link between the plea that David prays and the answer that this second voice gives in extolling God for his faithfulness and his steadfast mercy. So let's look at verses 8 and 9. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. And then echoed in verse 12, Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. In other words, the one that fears the Lord, God will teach him. God will lead that man in the way that he should choose. Well, isn't that the answer to what David was praying? Isn't David, wasn't he praying for guidance? And here this next voice comes in and says that God instructs the sinners, O David, and that God leads the humble in what is right, and God teaches the humble his way, and if you fear the Lord, that God will instruct you in the way that you should go. The Lord has answered David's prayer for guidance already, right here in the psalm. The Lord is good and upright and instructs those who fear him. The Lord will lead him according to his righteousness. The Lord will not abandon David to his enemies, though he is a sinner. No, 
No, the Lord in his mercy instructs sinners in the way all their life long. And why does he do that? Verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. And then verse 14 echoes, again, look at the, the same keyword, covenant. It says in verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. The, 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 the teaching voice is emphasizing the covenant faithfulness of God. God is not instructing David because of David's impeccable personal righteousness. David has not merited the favor of God. No, it is God's character, his steadfast love and his faithfulness, and especially the faithfulness of God in his covenant, the eternal purpose of God by which he relates to his people and establishes fellowship with them that is motivating God's response to David. So David's understanding of God's covenant is not fully formed. We, we know what God's covenant is, right? We understand it. It's the covenant of redemption, the covenant that God made between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit before the creation of the world to redeem a people for himself through the election of the Father and by the redemption of the Son and by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and that this would be accomplished uh, by all of these persons of the Godhead and it would be received by faith alone through Christ alone. And, and that's the fullness of the covenant. But David saw it in, 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 in shadows and in types. And by his knowledge of the covenant of God, that, that God relates to me and instructs me and forgives me, not because of my righteousness, but because somehow in God's covenant, he will deal with my sin. And we know how that happens. We know that that is by the, re the redemption in Jesus Christ. Even though David didn't understand that fully, he understood this, that my relationship with God is not on my terms, but it is by God's covenant faithfulness. God is under no obligation to befriend anyone. All people have sinned against him and transgressed his law and deserve judgment. Why did God establish any kind of covenant? Why did God make any way for sinners to be brought into fellowship with him? David sees that it's not because of him. It is because of God. Notice in verse 10, it says his covenant, right? This is God's covenant. And also notice in verse 14, it says he makes known to them his covenant. It's not like you know, um, seekers, by, 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 by dint of seeking good enough or, or deeply enough, they discovered the covenant of God. No, no, verse 14 very clearly says, God makes known to them according to his electing purpose and according to his grace, those who will be his friends, who God has called his friends. So we do not merit the, the favor of God but God in grace has extended friendship and love because of his love and mercy to those who fear him. And the covenant faithfulness of God is exemplified by the way that God fulfills his promises. And this is, is uh, emphasized in verse 13. If you look at verse 13, uh, David, uh, again, he says, his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. Okay, so if you, if you read that line, his offspring shall inherit the land, what does that remind you of? Does that like ring a little bell in your, in your mind? You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the promises that God gave to the patriarchs, to Abraham. Remember God promised Abraham, your offspring, I will give this land. And then later on, God repeated and, and expanded on that promise when God said to David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, remember David wanted to make God a temple and then God came to him and said, no, you will not make a temple, but your son, your offspring will make a temple. And then God promises 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13, I will raise up your offspring after you 
who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that promise was fulfilled, right? Solomon, the, the son of, of King David, built the temple of the Lord. But, but we see through that promise the greater fulfillment that God would bring about the eternal king through the son of David, Jesus Christ. So God's covenant faithfulness is fulfilled and is exemplified by the way that he fulfills the promises that God gave to the patriarchs, to David, through Christ, ultimately to all of God's people. So can you see the way that David's earnest pleadings are answered by the extolling and, and the explanation of God's covenant faithfulness. God, uh, David asked for deliverance. And, in, and instead of immediately delivering him, look how the Lord answered. The Lord answered, even within the very text of David's prayer, by taking his focus and putting them on, putting his focus on God, putting his focus on the covenant faithfulness of God. David asks for deliverance, and God provided not just um, temporal mortal deliverance, but ultimate deliverance, uh, deliverance through the covenant uh, of grace, uh, forgiveness from his sins. David prayed for guidance, and God brought him into friendship and covenant relationship with him. And yet, there's still one leftover plea that David has. There's still one great weight on David's heart that forms his final plea. And that final plea is the focal point of this psalm. And it's the point at which these two voices point to in the middle of the psalm. So let's look at it. Verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. After having thought about the covenant mercies of God, um, the apprehension of David's guilt for sin remains. But even that manifests the grace and mercy of God, that David uh, does not appeal to his personal righteousness here. If you look at the verse, verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. So David is saying, please pardon my guilt, O Lord, not because I merit it, not because I'm a, I'm a man after your own heart, because I've somehow earned it. No, no. Because for your namesake, O Lord. Hear what Spurgeon writes. For thy namesake, O Lord, is a blessed, never-failing plea. Not for our sake, not for our merits' sake, but to glorify thy mercy and to show forth the glory of thy divine attributes. Pardon my guilt. I have confessed it. It is abhorred. It is consuming my heart with grief. Now, Lord, forgive it. Let thine own lips pronounce my absolution, for it is great. It weighs so heavily upon me that I pray that thee remove it. Its greatness is not too difficult with thee, for you are a great God. To pardon a great sinner will bring you great glory. Therefore, for thy name's sake, pardon me. This plea is the focal point of David's prayer, and it becomes this loud crescendo of his pleading. And yet, it also provides the answer. It's the question and the answer together. Because God has provided David salvation by his grace. The covenant faithfulness of God that, that David voices in the other sections of this psalm testified that David trusts in the Lord. And David has, uh, God has answered David's plea. David elsewhere wrote, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose sins the Lord does not count against him. So how can we apply this psalm? How can we take what David has written down, what God has given to us, and apply it to our life? There's a handful of things. What is the basis of your hope in the midst of uncertainty? Where do you go for guidance? What is your grounding for pardon? Our hope is the one 
and the same as David's, the covenant faithfulness of God. And, and as mentioned already, this covenant we know better than David did, for we have the fullness of revelation that David didn't see. We see God's salvation fully in Jesus Christ. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that our guilt has been pardoned by being placed on the head of our Lord. Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the application of this psalm for us is to do what David did. Go to the Lord and behold his covenant faithfulness to us in Christ. <clears throat> in Christ. Christ suffered in our place for our sin. Christ bore the penalty that our guilt may be forgiven. It was the will of the Lord to crush his son as an offering for sin so that he might by his son pardon all those who put their trust in him. Not only has God pardoned us of our guilt, but he has clothed us in robes of righteousness. That means that he has imputed the righteousness of Christ to us so that when God looks upon his children, he sees all the perfections and righteousness of his son. He sees as if we had done the righteousness that Christ has done and, and punished his son as if he had done the sins that we do. And not only that, but he is continually leading us for our good and for his glory. This psalm sets out a pattern. Bring your pleas before the Lord in prayer. He will hear your supplication. Be led by God through your prayer to consider the goodness of the Lord. Consider how God answers your pleas by his Son. Consider how God will accomplish his purposes in you and, and through you by the gospel of his dear Son. Be led by the Lord to see Christ at the center of the circumstance that you're going through. My dear brother and my dear sister, Jesus was in the days of his flesh afflicted. Jesus was in such a condition. None could enter into the secret depths of his sorrows. He tread the winepress alone and hence is able to strengthen you to the fullest, those who tread the solitary path of trouble. As Richard Baxter wrote, Richard Baxter, great Puritan, Christ leads me through the darker rooms, excuse me, Christ leads me through no darker rooms than went he before. He that into God's kingdom comes must enter by this door. My knowledge of that life is small, the eye of faith is dim, but tis enough that Christ knows all and I shall be with him. I hope in the midst of affliction, in the midst of bewilderment, when we don't know what to do, is this. God is absolutely and without fail wholly good to his children. He is the God of our salvation. He is our faithful, covenant-keeping God. He does not treat us as our sins deserve because he treated Christ as our sins deserve. And he treats us as Christ deserves pouring out blessing upon blessing. Christ was wounded for our transgressions, raised to life for our justification. If you are here as one who has put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your sins, God has cast your sins into the depths of the sea to be remembered no more. He has given you the righteousness of Christ, he has given you his Holy Spirit. He is your counselor and guide. He will fulfill every one of his purposes in you according to his good and perfect will in Christ Jesus. And so, my dear 
brother and sister, rest in the Lord. Lift up your soul to the Lord. In Christ, find God's answer to your plea for guidance and deliverance and pardon. If you are here as one who has not put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not repented of your sin, if you are relying on your own goodness, that God should pardon your guilt, not for his sake, but for your sake. You might not think of it that way, but if you're not trusting in Christ and Christ alone, that's what you're asking God to do. And the scripture says that there is none who does good, not even one. And so, oh friend, flee into the grace of God through Jesus Christ that you might know the faithfulness and blessing of the Lord, that your sins may be washed clean. Let's pray. O Lord, your word truly is a mine without depth. Lord, that is to say it is, depth is infinite. And so, O God, we are unable to really comprehend the depth and the breadth of your truth, Lord, the magnanimity of your grace, uh, Lord, the, the faithfulness that you demonstrate to us in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, my words are weak, and yet we trust in your eternal purposes. Lord, we ask that your word may bear fruit in the hearts of your people. Lord, that my dear brothers and sisters who are here, Lord, afflicted and troubled as they may be, O oh God, that you might cause them to look upon Christ. Lord, that you might comfort their soul, that they might, Lord, hear the, the assurance of Christ's pardon in the gospel, that they might see, Lord, as evidence of their pardon, the blood that was shed on their behalf on the cross. And Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, interceding before the throne of God forever until he returns again, Lord, who will always be with us and never forsake us. And so, O oh God, guide us to behold the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his gracious name. Amen. Amen.